0: Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Dr. Peter Ballerstedt is a forage agronomist. Working in ruminant agriculture, that means predominantly meat and milk, Peter has research and resources at his fingertips, making him an expert in controversial subjects such as the consumption of grain-fed versus grass-fed beef. With the dawn of popular nutritional protocols like paleo, A whirlwind of emphasis has been put on choosing organic, free-range, grass-fed, pain-free, hugged twice-daily meat. Power Athlete has always maintained that you are what you eat eats. However, in speaking with Peter, it's clear that there are far more machines at work driving people to choose grass-fed over grain-fed, and shocker, not all of them have your performance as their top priority. John has never shied away from uncovering new information in the name of battling the bullshit, and today's episode is certainly no exception. This conversation had us all scratching our heads and furiously doing our own research on the subject of grain-fed versus grass-fed. Today, we start a beef with the meat industry. This is episode 152. Here's my soul.
1: Power Athlete Nation, what is up? As is tradition, you have John and Luke here out of uh, Orange County, with Techs in Texas. We're going to jump right into this because we've been battling some tech issues on our end that have been a pain in the ass. But uh, we have a uh, uh, Peter Ballerstedt on who is a Ford's argonomist. and uh, basically, I'll let John jump into how we we decided to call Peter in. But uh, Peter, before we get into there, because this was a, a relatively new job role that, to me, why don't you go ahead and, and give us kind of the, the nuts and bolts behind what the heck forage argnominist uh, is.
2: Argonus. Uh, thank you. Sorry. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, simply stated, forages are those plants that are grown to be eaten by animals, and agronomy is are the sciences of soil and plant and field management. So I work in agriculture. I primarily support ruminant agriculture. So that's the production ultimately of meat and milk. Um, And um, I'm also keenly interested in the paleo primal low carb nutrition messages. So uh, it's a happy coincidence
1: and yeah, one thing you had mentioned before the show is like you're you're kind of stuck between this rock and a hard place right in the sense that you know you're you're a fan of this kind of low carb paleo and and food quality type deal and and the, the people who are passionate about that you certainly sympathize with them but then you're on the other hand you know the majority of your work goes towards agriculture which a lot of times that big ag tends to be vilified in that in those circles that you know on both ends right
2: Indeed, I I think that I find myself wanting to introduce a lot of the people that I've known for many years in agriculture who desperately need to hear the nutrition and health message personally, as well as just to kind of make them feel better about the industries they're involved with. And then at the same time, the people that I've learned so much from about nutrition and health Uh, will frequently say things that I know to be factually incorrect. And um, if you've ever read a book and found yourself reading a book where, you know, they they say something ridiculous and the the book seeming almost jumps out of my hands, it's very hard for me to keep reading, which is bad behavior on my part because I should continue and see where they're right as well as you know twitch hard when I find where they're wrong so I'm just I, I just want to make sure because I think the dietary and health message is so important I want to make sure that we don't pick up any misinformation along the way um that then you know it, I I don't know what an ana- uh, a good analogy for you would be but if you're listening to somebody on something completely new and then they go ahead and they drop something into the conversation about fitness or exercise or strength you know conditioning whatever that you know to not be true it's going to make it very hard for you to listen to that bit that you don't know about at least on from my perspective it's well i i know they're wrong about this so how does that you know, color the the other information that they're trying to deliver. And um, I also find it somewhat ironic that we can, you know, fly off to these big conferences or what have you and then criticize the producers of food that make it possible for us to have the kind of disposable income that then allows us to go fly off to these conferences
3: so. Yeah, the um yeah, I mean I, I'm one hundred percent with you. I mean we run into this all the time where somebody's trying to put something out and then they just completely, you know, decide with something that's complete bullshit and then instantly it just taints all the message and then at that point you're kinda like, Well, you know, if I'm supposed to be learning something here and you make a completely, you know, erroneous claim that we know to be not true, what else is not true? And so it kind of destroys the ethos of it and Really, uh, what we we're talking about offline is the message for Power Athlete is really the battle of the bullshit. And part of this is not only strength conditioning, but nutrition, uh, food, and really just having different people like yourself come on and just, you know, really give us kind of key information. You know, it just seems that there's so much misinformation out there about, you know, food quality and this and, you know, and it gives people the excuse to charge, you know, $50 a pound for a grass fed versus, you know, 4 or $5 a pound versus a grain fed. And they, they almost stigmatize it so much.
2: Exactly. Um, so there's a lot there. The the simplest way to start this is that so many of these issues or causes are now all conflated and, and twisted together. And so you kind of have to be really careful and tease them apart to know exactly what is it we're talking about, you know, on, on both sides of the conversation. So from just a food quality, a nutritional background issue uh, when I got started in 2007 with a low carbohydrate, you know, basically I was following Mike Eads protein power. That's how I got started. I was, uh, I, I was a pre-diabetic, you know, balding, obese, whatever I was then I'm now going to be 60 in August. So, um, and today I'm just balding. So, um, <laughs> That, yeah, it's not a miracle, right? Um, the, I, being a forage agronomist by training, I was reading all these people saying things about grass-fed meat, and of course I loved that message, right? It, it just tripped all my um, biases, frankly, and what I did was I started looking at the actual um, studies, And what I found was a lot of these studies were coming out of the mindset that said, well, we know that fat in the diet causes heart disease, right? And so they they kind of are based on that faulty premise. So very early on, the proponents of grass-fed meat were talking about how it's lower in saturated fat than grain-finished meat well, what if saturated fat isn't an issue? Um, you know, there was even talk about differences in cholesterol levels, and dietary cholesterol has never been an issue, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I started digging in a little deeper, and and it all seems to go back to what I call the Greenland paradox that these researchers found that communities in Greenland ate very high levels. Well, how, how the, the quote from the paper went something like, the Greenland Eskimos have, or however they describe them, have very low rates of heart disease despite eating a diet high in fat. And there you have it. So they then said it must be the fish oil etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So all of this then becomes very questionable in my mind and then you find the actual data that shows what the difference between uh grass finished versus grain finished beef is. And if someone wants to be eating grass finished beef because they think that that's what they need, that's fine. Um you're going to pay more for it. And if you can afford it, that's great. Um, but if that's your reason for choosing it, then you shouldn't be eating pork and you shouldn't be eating poultry. And please don't let me find you eating vegetable oils. Um, because you're not going to get any benefit from the beef and that extra money that you're spending isn't being well-invested um how to put
3: it um the it's not to cut you off but that's kind of an interesting statement about a pork and chicken um not that you know i don't want to really get off the beat but you know why would i mean is that because those are just uh so commercially raised and you know i guess just really not a healthy alternative i mean you know i mean for so long it was like oh don't eat meat. It's got saturated fat. Eat chicken and and uh, you know and people love to vilify the pork, but the other white meat. Yeah, the other white meat. Right, the other dry, tasteless white meat. Um, the
2: <laughs> and and I don't have anything to say about pork or poultry. I'm just not involved. You know, I'm am a ruminant advocate. Um, but the the reason is because fundamentally these animals are very different and their digestive systems are very different, and so a ruminant the, the meat of a ruminant animal will always have a lower level of polyunsaturated fatty acids than will meat from poultry or swine, just because of the biological architecture. Now, I'm not saying we need to worry about pork and poultry. I'm just saying for consistency's sake. You know, another way to put it is that beef, rega- and and this would be lamb or goat or any other ruminant animal, is going to have, is not a rich source of either omega-6 or omega-3. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Um, yeah.
3: So the, we're at the, uh, the Greenland Paradox uh, mm-hmm. you know, obviously if you have the money to eat grass fed, but if you really don't, I mean, it's, you know, kind of negligible in terms of these amounts. So what would be the, uh, the argument for, let's say, I mean, is it sustainability? Is it, uh, you know, uh, a healthier practice? I mean, is, uh, you know, the, animal? I mean, like, what about the, uh, you know, the differences? I mean, like just nutritionally is, I mean, like, are there really differences? Because I mean, if you get online, it's like, you know 3000 or I mean sorry 3 million uh you know responses within point you know 3 seconds of the reason why grass fed is so much more healthier for you than GrainFest.
2: right so i i think mostly it's about perception and as i said there are many issues that then all get wrapped up into one so um, people make statements about um e coli that aren't justified they make statements about antibiotics they make statements about um exogenous hormones um and and all of those can be refuted but typically it's very hard to have that kind of conversation so if somebody is for example these are just some i'm I'm looking at some slides now so forgive me because i can't remember this stuff but if If you're going to try to um, get omega-3 from grass-fed beef, in order to get the amount of omega-3 that you could get from one ounce of cooked, wild-caught Atlantic salmon, you'd have to eat 48 ounces, three pounds, of cooked... Sounds like a challenge cooked grass fed ground beef, and the problem with that is you're going to be eating more omega six than you are just a little bit i mean it's 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 really really beef is not the source, regardless of how no. it's produced um, but for example, if you're still eating safflower oil you'd have to eat 32 ounces of salmon to counteract the omega-6 you'd get from two tablespoons of that oil. So if you're eating vegetable oils, grass-fed is an irrelevancy. It, it, It can't make a difference just from the numbers. Now, if you wanna look at other things like sustainability, I think that there's arguments to be made there as well. Um, but again, if if you know producers in your local area, and you can purchase grass-fed meat from those and and those farmers, that's great. That's wonderful. Go ahead and do that. But again, many of the arguments that are made in favor of that really don't stand scrutiny. Um, in fact, depending on how you want to shape the models, there are some suggestions that uh, some work has shown that grass-fed meat actually will result in greater greenhouse gas production than grain-finished meat. So, and and you can argue all of these things, it's just not as uh, as settled as many people make it sound when they advocate for the position one way or the other
3: would um would there be uh I mean I, I guess you could say if we did a nutritional analysis would grass fed meat have more grams of uh, protein per ounce than let's say uh, a like grain fed meat I mean I know that's well, a ridiculous bullshit but like I'm 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 kind of just searching for you know, like given the opportunity, uh, you know, because I mean, really, it goes back to if you're eating some form of animal-based protein, uh, you know, like something like, uh, you know, whether it be, a, 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 you know, lamb or or you know, beef, you know, that's the single most important thing. And then I, I guess, you know, just learning from the nutritional analysis, you know, with the protein content the higher, I mean, obviously the fatty acid profile is kind of negligible. Uh, what about you know vitamin A you know uh, you know vitamin K, or, or you know just pretty much any type of uh, minerals and, and vitamins associated with would the contents be higher would it be less? Well,
2: we can see there's a number of studies that
3: that will cite
2: quantitative differences in a number of constituents. So differences in vitamin A or or vitamin K um, specifically, if you end up with a leaner cut of whatever animal it is uh, compared to one that has more fat, you're going to have, therefore, more protein in the leaner cut because you're getting less fat. Um, So you can see that. Part of the problem then is we have very little way To talk intelligently about the biological significance of the quantitative differences, right? So, um, some work um, that you can that I've certainly read that suggests, you know, your your need for vitamins, for example, is heavily impacted by how much carbohydrate you're eating. So how important is it that you have those kinds of vitamin differences, for example? Is that is that really the critical thing? And I don't think we have a good answer for it. Um, I I think that the, the antioxidant com questions that, that come up are again heavily uh, prejudiced by the whole general what is a healthy diet conversation that we've been having for the last four decades in this country so uh, we we shouldn't get confused between what's uh, measurable differences and biologically significant differences and and if we're dealing with people who um, are economically challenged in terms of what they're already buying at the store, I think that we have to be very uh circumspect about telling them that they have to spend even more than it's going to require for them to shift away from what some people call the garbage to one that's heavier on animal products, eggs,
3: dairy, meat. You made a uh, great statement that I still remember, You know, three and a half years later, uh, about the problem not necessarily being the grain-fed meat, it was more the grain-fed people. <laughs> And uh, I remember, you know, the first thing in your talked, you made that comment, and I was like, I actually wrote it down, and was like, wow, that was uh, that's a pretty amazing statement. I mean, you're having people that are so wrapped up in this idea of uh, grass fed versus grain fed, and it's probably not that as much as it is the, like you said, the best oils and the different grains that the individual is consuming. I mean, ruminants have you know multiple stomachs that they're able to process and you know uh, you know chew grass and being able to do it, whereas you know humans having one stomach, maybe not as uh, you know able to process these things as well absolutely to the point of
2: sustainability as well we all what we have is the vast majority of the land surface of the world can't produce feedstuffs that humans can utilize directly and even on that land that can produce human utilizable feedstuffs the entire crop isn't utilizable there's there's byproduct or there's straw or there's all kinds of material that's produced that that we as monogastrics can't utilize but ruminants can take that high fiber low fat feed stuff and convert it into high quality animal fat and then through the rumen microbes they can take non-protein nitrogen and convert it into high-quality animal protein, which the world seems to have a problem supplying. So as we look at a growing world population, um, ruminant animals are going to be critical to meeting the goal of, I think, the the UN figures or something like uh, doubling the food production of today, by two thousand and fifty and in and that would increase six, uh, include sixty percent more animal products because as the rest of the world becomes more prosperous, they want animal products um, So, ruminant animals are going to be, they are are already a critical part of the world's food supply, and their importance will only increase going forward. I heard uh, Dr. Mike Eads make the statement here last month, uh, maybe February, um, that we didn't evolve to eat meat, we evolved because we ate meat. And if you look at the ancient cave paintings in Europe, uh, France, for example, you know, it's, it's not of the sacred soybean. It's, it's of the ancient
3: cattle. Um, (laughs) Not not to take you off on this, but, uh, um, I'm I'm glad I'm not the only one that thinks the, uh, consuming of soy and that this whole soy debate thing. I mean, like, we get hit with it constantly is, probably one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard, uh, you know, and I, I, I battle with people all the time. They're like, no, 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 soy is an adequate style of protein. I'm like, dude, it is not. So I'm glad I'm not yeah. the only one that gets, gets a, a, a kick out of that stuff. Good. No, I, you know, um,
2: the, somewhere it's interesting to see how All of the narratives had to be shifted to align to what was now going to be the story of the heart healthy diet. So leading up into the 60s, the people that had actually done obesity research on real live human beings knew what it was that made people get fat. The science was advancing to allow them to explain all the mechanisms And it was understood. um, In fact, uh, prior to, you know, you you have the old information pre-anti-seizure medication, how to deal with childhood epilepsy. And then you had the anti-seizure meds come along and they forgot all the previous information. You had the diabetes diet prior to having insulin available. And that was going to be a restricted carbohydrate diet. And that's how they treated people until they had exogenous insulin that they could administer and so they forgot all the stuff that came before and now you had this well we know that fat in a diet causes heart disease and so all the information about how to um, prevent or um, reverse obesity through a restricted carbohydrate diet got just completely forgotten because well, you know, since we know that fat in the diet causes heart disease, well, then we have to come up with a different explanation for obesity. And you can see that thing rippling out in all kinds of, of other topics. And, and one of them was it is still common knowledge amongst anyone that actually does work that um, plant protein and animal protein are in no way equivalent and and that if you're going to try to be a vegetarian diet you have to consume more protein in order to get enough uh and somewhere along the line i came across a figure of like 30% more um and 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 yet that's a problem, right? Because we're going to tell people to eat less animal products to be heart healthy. And, and so these, this contamination spreads throughout all these other disciplines. Um, and again, back to the introduction, I'm, I'm hoping that we can avoid some of that in our new expanding and developing understanding. Um, but it's it's not at all debatable that animal protein is superior to plant protein. Um, and yet, you know, we, we're still having the conversation. Um, people will rail against processed food. And I say, excuse me, are we talking about plant processed plant products or processed animal products? there's are two very different things. Um, and yet they all get lumped together and they
3: all get vilified. And I would I think, make, uh, like, like what would be, uh, like what, like an example of like triscuits versus yogurt. Well, yeah, uh, good. Like, good sure, good point. Um, uh, I, I
2: was thinking more along the lines of uh, triscuits versus um, bacon or oh. uh, or liverwurst or some other lunch meat, you know, ham or, or what have you. Um, partly, we've been told that salt is bad for you, and now they're having to walk back from that. They used to be crazy about nitrate, and they're having to come back off that. Hmm. You
3: know, so it, it – and then – Go ahead. Doc, I I was at uh you know uh, years ago I did a speaking engagement with uh, Dr. Cordain you know the guy who uh, kind of first theorized and talked about the Paleo diet and his part of his whole presentation was talking about how there was no salt in a uh, you know the modern or the hunter gatherer uh, you know paleo man uh, diet and I remember uh, thinking that you know geez I mean um, uh, you know blood was a you know primary component of you know the Maasai warrior I mean I'm sure Blood well, was a, a you know component in other ways, and you know they're obviously being salt. And then I remember seeing pictures of like massive salt mines, and then talking about you know the uh, you know the practice of converting salt from the ocean. And I always thought that that was uh, kind of a far-reaching claim to assume that you know uh, you know that salt wasn't included. Where you know I mean, if you look at Genghis Khan and their uh, you know just his horde. I mean, part of their deal is they would slaughter an animal and they would, you know, slap it out, throw it on the back of the horse, cover it with a blanket and ride and the salt off the animals would cure the meat. So, you know. Yeah, or didn't
2: didn't they pay the Roman soldiers in salt? Yeah. I I seem to recall that from somewhere. So, yeah, you you hear many things. um, And um, I, I think in the fullness of time, we'll find out that these arguments just don't stand. In fact, there are... Alternative hypotheses to explain what it was they were trying to explain through their theory that too much salt led to uh, hypertension and other problems. And, and well,
3: was the idea that if you consume a whole bunch of foods that uh, you know could be high in salt, like it, you know, I, I mean, I remember seeing uh, the study that the countries in the world that where people consume the most nitrates have the most brain cancer. That was a, a you know, a, a study and, you know, whether or not it was from the nitrates, you know, it also turned out it was most developing countries. So mm-hmm. it's like, well, I mean, is, is it uh, most developing countries are consuming things with nitrates? I mean, but then what other factors that would be contributing to brain cancer? You know, would it be everything from, uh, yeah, air pollution, you know, cell phone. Yeah. I mean, so it, it, yeah. the the problem becomes is, um, you know, recently, uh, this is just kind of a little off topic. We were approached about uh, some genetic testing, and this, you know, there's a different company called Fitness Genes, and what they're doing is taking saliva, and they're testing different markers for athleticism. And uh, people are getting it done, and then they're kind of shooting it over, and they're like, Well, I have this gene. And I was trying to remind people, I'm like, Well, one to one analysis of saying, because I have this gene, I'm this way doesn't make sense. It's actually a kind of a, a massive, you know, combination lock. It's like listening to a symphony of a lot of different notes and keys put together to make music that really kind of gives you genetic profile and then 50 percent is only what you start with and the rest of it is you know what you're exposed to in terms of you know how you you know manifest the you know the genetics based on diet training sleep age you know environment all these other key factors you can't look at it one-to-one and the problem becomes with a lot of the nutrition uh is everybody wants to look for a one-to-one cause So it's like, oh, uh, you know, uh, the countries that eat the most nitrates have brain cancer. It must be the nitrates. And we know that's just not the case. Um, Right.
1: It's It's just easier statement to make.
3: Yeah, because you you know what it is? It's quick fate. It it causes fear. And then it, um, you know, offers. uh, Then
1: you can offer a a value proposition, which happens to be your solution that you profit off.
3: Yes. Right, right. And and oh, by the way, it
2: confirms what I went into the study with. So that's all good, too right
3: well you know the um uh, you know i think the the bigger thing is not what kind of animal based protein you're eating it's whether or not you're eating enough animal based protein i would agree and
2: and yeah, if we if we look back through human history um it's been a very 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 long time if ever that the average human certainly in the developed west but one might be able to say throughout the world, again, you can find exceptions and in incredible poverty, and we should be working to alleviate that. But we spend so little of our daily existence procuring that animal product, right? We're not, and, and, and that's a great thing. <laughs> because it frees us up to do other creative things. And so society as a whole can benefit because we have people who are freed from the having to spend 14 hours a day working in their garden or preserving their food or whatever it is. We have this romantic notion of what life used to be like. And it, is, the is reality...
3: Like, is the <laughs> I'm sorry, what? like the... the... I, I was joking. That seems like the uh, the basis of the Re- Republican Party. Let's talk about how it used to be and what we can get back to. I mean, oh, it's yeah. like um, but yeah. I mean, it, it, isn't that the kind of a romanticizing of like how things used to be? And you know, I always uh, joke that you know, uh, um, dude, uh, you know, all you got to do is you know, if you want to know how things used to be, is you know, go talk to your grandmother, you know, and or you know, somebody that was around the turn of the century, or even you know, my dad, who was a child of the Depression, uh, yeah. you know, talking to him about. Uh, you know, that life and how things were and like, you know, standing in line for, you know, just at the supermarket and, you know, like that type of, um, you know, stuff. He's like, dude, let me tell you, like the, the romanticizing about this stuff is, is, uh, is kind of a a, a ploy by a lot of people that are trying to sell some stuff. So I,
2: I I think so. I, I am the, my mother had my older brother and myself, um, And she had us, when she was quite old, and that's in 1956, I think she was 43, yes, when I was born. So, at that
3: time, that was really, um, and, and so. uh, Anything over 26, I believe, uh, it was, like, I just remember seeing this, that I remember uh, up until about 20 years ago, anything over the age of, like, 26 was considered a geriatric pregnancy. And they yeah. had to go back and completely redo the medical thing because, you know, we live here in Newport Beach where, you know, 45-year-old women are paying $100,000 to, you know, uh, have an egg implant. I mean, I like – I drop my kids off at uh, school, and I'm uh, always surprised when the, you know, moms come in with their kids or their dads, and I'm like, are these their gra- – are these just their grandparents
1: <laughs> Well, <laughs> in the, some in cases, time,
3: they may well be, right? But – there's that
2: trend too but um you know so so my mother was an only child my father was an only child and so that puts it back many generations you know many years before i could hope to find cousins right and so looking for any of those i i remember coming across one family just in census and other records and here this family is and it's got i don't know 13 kids you know a large family and i got all excited And I managed to go back to Redding, Pennsylvania, where all these people are from, and I'm in the municipal graveyard, and I found the family plot, and I'm all excited because now I can find maybe some information. And I remember the shock of standing there in this plot where there's like nine very small headstone markers, and they were all within nine months, the date of death. Wow. So this family had been wiped out by something that had come into the community. That was their reality. We don't deal with that. So, so, so people want to say, we want this to be changed in our society, but it's like, well, what else are you willing to accept with that? Because it doesn't
3: come alone. Yeah. The, um, um, you know, my dad tells us stories about, you know, he grew up in Kansas and, uh, you know, he was, you know, born in 37 and he remembers, uh, when World War II started, um, they, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, World War II hits and the war effort started and my grandfather, uh, was, uh, an engineer and all of his brothers and everybody were engineers and they were living in like, uh, Topeka, Kansas, and they all packed up the car and my dad remembers a little kid, like he had, like literally they packed up everything in the house and they were driving out to California for the war effort because mm-hmm. they were literally put out this thing, like if you were an engineer or you have a you know, this, I mean, we have to, for the war effort and they looked at it as their civic responsibility to go to California to build airplanes and ships and that's what my grandfather and all of his brothers did was build uh aircraft for you know yeah. like the McDonald's Douglas plant right here in California yep. and that's how we got out of here. Yep. But like, Oh uh, interesting. Economy, my yeah.
2: Yeah, my wife.
3: I mean, Dad literally telling the story about riding in the car and like you know them stopping at different places and like you know they had to like they would stop and then they would have to walk for gas and there'd be a house and you'd have to knock <laughs> on the door. I mean, there was no gas stations, there was no restaurants. Like there was like nothing and like you had to pack all of the stuff in the car, like tires. Car, I mean, everything. And then you're out there trying to fix it. And, like, you know, now what do we do? We, we go to the airport and we complain because it's, you know, five minutes late. We get there, you call an Uber. It's like, <laughs>
1: uh, you know. There's a uh, stand-up bit about that where the lady's like, the Internet's down. I can't handle this. And he's like, you're on an airplane, lady, that takes us across the country yeah. in four hours when it used to take
3: four well, years. Well, the and, and the other one is, and you, you'll appreciate this statement, is uh, I – you know, when I retired from the NFL, I you know, I, I got into this and I actually had a gym here in Newport Beach. And, you know, I, I opened a gym. and I thought it'd be great. We'll, we'll work out. We'll have people. And I had clients. And the thing was, is that the more technology increased, the less time people had. And I remember this client who came in. And he had a business. He had a personal assistant. He had a chauffeur. He had a cell phone, an iPad. I mean, all of these things. And the one thing he didn't have was time. He didn't have time for anything. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for meals. I don't have time for anything. And I finally asked him, I'm like, what do you have time for? We you have all the technological advances, all of the gadgetry, everything in the world to make your life easier? And it seems like the more shit you get, the less time you have. I'm like, what do you have time for? And I remember he was like, you know, uh-huh. and I'm, basically I never saw him again because like, he didn't have time <laughs> for it. And uh, well, yeah. I just remember thinking all of this, like, and and that's something we've run into constantly with people, you know, like, oh, I, I don't have time for this. I'm like, what do you have time for? Because you sure as hell don't have time to to to, to source your own food. Can, can you imagine if you, you know, went to the supermarket and there was nothing and you had to survive off of what was in your garden and what you were raising? Or, right. you know, to go out. I mean, I, uh, um, at the end of last year, I pulled an elk tag and went out and hunted an elk and um, mm. the you know, brought it home. And, you know, we, we've been eating that. But I'm like, you know, part of our deal is I want to be able to go out and actually – you know, kill and bring something home and feed the kids and, like, talk to them a little bit about where this stuff comes from. That meat just doesn't come wrapped in cellophane at the store, that, that you know, there's some process in terms of bringing it in. And um, it just, it's pretty interesting. And you make a great point about, you know, uh, everybody wants to hark back to these easier days when they realistically have no concept of what those harder days were. Yeah, I, I,
2: I heard someone at one of the ag, uh, meetings I attended say that more Americans have direct personal experience with the criminal justice system than have experience, direct personal experience with production agriculture.
3: Yeah. And I said, well, ooh, right.
2: let, let me like, go I,
3: look. Uh, the, well, uh, uh, I started, I, I, like when in 2009, I started a food company, and the food company was based off this idea that we were traveling so much for work that uh I, I was having trouble, like, because every time you go into a, into an airplane or airport, there's never really anything good to eat.
0: So, like, Tell I wanted to it. be
3: able to, like, course, like, snacks that I could take with me on my trip. And so my wife would, like, go to this cool place, get jerky, and we ended up making a company out of it. And um my most difficult thing was uh actually trying to convey to people that, uh you know, uh that you know i mean that the uh the production cost of actually you know almost kind of minimally producing things was so much dramatically higher than things that were overly processed case in point like trying to do jerky that only has a few ingredients that doesn't that that isn't packed with uh soy sauce salt and all these other key factors like you know actually like a a, a, like a good jerky that you don't feel like you have to drink a gallon of water out of opposed from a slim gym where you don't even know what that is and like people like that disconnect. And I, I remember going to not only um, different smoke houses, but actually going and visiting farms and seeing and talking to, you know, uh, producers of animals and being able to kind of go through this. And I remember being like, people have no concept of what it takes to go, you know, farm to table. And because they have no concept, uh, they have no kind of, I guess, global awareness of what the cost of these things are. Sure.
2: Uh, I mean, I could name, but I won't, some very, um, popular and famous speakers who talk about their production systems, but it's always interesting to go talk to their neighbors because you kind of learn things. Um, you know, most people aren't aware that, you know, from the time that you put the bull in with the cows, it's going to be nine months before a calf is born. And then that calf is going to be, and, and, And meanwhile, then you've got three months or so before that cow has to be rebred so that she'll give you a a calf, you know, the next year on time. Um, And then that calf that was produced is going to take somewhere approaching two years before it's market ready. Or if it's a heifer and you've decided to keep her to, you know, kind of add back to the cow herd, um, she's got to be bred, what, uh, you know, something like when she's 15 months, so that she'll have a calf at 24 months. And that during that phase, we can be running these animals on some, you know, the, the the cows can be run on some relatively unproductive ground. And in fact, because you're only going to get, you know, that kind of A cow only makes you money when you sell her or sell her calf, right? All the rest of her life, there's some expense to her. Now, your job as a rancher is to lower the inputs to the point where you can be making a profit, um, but you're not going to do that on the really highly productive, really expensive ground. You're always going to be out on that kind of rangeland or hill land that shouldn't be tilled, et cetera, et cetera. So getting people to understand that even that steer that you know now is, has been raised until it's 800 pounds before it ever sees the feedlot, all that time was spent eating grass. And a lot of people don't know this um and and again some people don't know and you know they're sincerely wrong and other people do know and they're intentionally misleading people um we, we, we live in this culture where, as I said, uh, I, I did go look up the numbers after I heard that one man give that quote. And, and the reality is that we have more people incarcerated, actually physically incarcerated, um, than we have primary operators of farms. And then you add on the number of people that are under probation or parole and it gets much, much bigger. So it, it, Uh, There's a lot that you could say about those statistics, but the simplest thing is we're being very well fed by a very small number of people, and the communication between the producers and society at large um, has really broken down for a number of reasons. And, and part of the message ought to be is that no other time in human existence have we been able to get the foods that arguably we need for so little cost.
0: Have you ever heard someone claim that a steak was too good or that a chick was too hot? How about that an athlete was too fast? No, you haven't. Why? Because that would make no fucking sense at all. You know the slogan, speed is king and speed kills, but the value of being fast on the field is not limited to that of a catchy tagline. It is legitimately the defining characteristic of the better athlete when all else is considered equal. In fact, you can even mitigate your deficits in size, strength, and power by simply outrunning your opponent. This is why we've created the Power Athlete Speed Program. Complete with instructional videos, points of performance, integrated speed tests, and progress tracking, thanks to Train Heroic. The fixed eight week program is dedicated to increasing speed. Dial in your mechanics, increase efficiency, and seize the opportunity to optimize speed under duress. This is the best way to prepare yourself or your athletes to outrun the competition. Speed can be developed, expanded, and improved upon. No one athlete is truly fast or truly slow. Instead, they're either actively training for speed or they're riding the bench. Learn more about the new power athlete speed program at www.powerathletehq.com. Now back to the show.
2: Um, You know, one of my examples and I completely resonate with the troubles of eating right on the road. It's, it's really amazing. Um, But if it's really, really, you know, I really have to have something, I can roll through one of the, the, you know, burger fast food, you know, uh, chains and buy a breakfast sandwich. Now, one particular chain I know, if you get the, you know, the bacon and egg muffin sandwich that they typically serve with cheese but say no cheese, it becomes a buck apiece and I just throw the muffin away and eat the contents for two bucks, I can get a really good shot of animal fat and animal protein. That's remarkable. Is it ideal? No. But, you know, this, this is something um, a friend of mine, Adele Height, if you're not familiar with her and her blog, Ethropology, I really recommend her. Uh, we've done programs together, and there's some talks that have been posted but she talks about working in a, a diabetes care clinic at Duke University Medical Center. And, you know, people who would literally go to the pizza joint buffet and scrape the toppings off the pizza, not eat the crust, eat that, and they improve their health.
3: So, You know, the, um, I have, I have a twin girls, and we just had a little boy not too long ago, and uh, my wife is is uh real big on like you know we get up and make lunches and a big thing in my household is um not only do the kids help prepare but like i want them to see us cook so we don't eat out a lot and like mm-hmm. a big part of like where did the meat come from and this is the process and they see mom and dad do this stuff and they have to help and set the table and it's just it's just part of this thing where uh i just don't like I, I want them to actually have a connection with the food and be like you know and like you know i always show them pictures like of the animals that we have taken and they know that, like, hey, this elk that we're eating, this is the one that Dad has shot. And uh, the thing which is most interesting is my wife makes lunches, and I do too, but um, mm-hmm. whenever I go pick the kids up, I'm always amazed to see what parents are feeding their kids. So mm-hmm. the other day I go and my, you know, we had, uh, like, basically I put in the kids' lunches, whatever we had that night. So we had a bunch of, like, uh, uh, you know, cubed elk that was uh, in a, I made, like, a big stew in the crock. So I put that in the girls' lunches and whatever else but I show up and like, you know, my kids are eating that with like pomegranate seeds and this. And I look over and the five kids around them are eating a uh, pizza and cheese puffs.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I like walk in and these are, you know, four year old little kids in preschool. And uh, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I'm like, wow. Um, you know, is this, you know, is this the state where, you know, I find I, I it hard to believe that people in Newport beach, uh, you know, aren't, somewhat educated i mean to live here you got to be fairly educated and make some dough so i mean here's people sending their kids off and you know uh, four years old with a slice of pizza and cheese puffs and uh you know that's a good meal for a four-year-old and, I'm, and i and kind of always tripped me out and i remember the the teacher's like oh your kids lunches look so good you know i would eat them and i and my comment is you wouldn't eat any other kids lunches and the lady looked at me and shook her head I mean, it's kind of yeah. a, you know, if you think it's kind of a disconnect, I mean, I remember, you know, I'm sure you've traveled extensively too. I mean, anywhere you go in the world and there's such a, a much higher value placed on food and almost, um, you know, like you invited, you go to a foreign country, somebody invites you invite to your house for a meal. It's, you know, it's bad taste to, to maybe decline and not eat everything. But here in America, it's like the food cost is so little. I mean, I think, you know, uh, the average American spends, you know, somewhere like, you know, 10 to 15% of their total income a year on food. Whereas in foreign countries, it's like 30 and 40%. So mm-hmm. it's just, a, you know, I think there's just some serious disconnect and maybe because it's, you know, in a, in a culture where we've just driven the price down and when you drive the price down, either you have to, you know, substitute that with either, you know, filler or quality and, you know, or maybe it's mass production, but it just seems that, uh, the 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 production of food between the production and the consumer is broken. And I don't think people have an understanding of necessarily what the value of things are, or more importantly, you know, what the cost to produce these things are.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's several things that we could talk about there, not the least of which is we've lost the practice of sitting down together and eating together. Uh, I remember visiting on a business trip, uh, Switzerland, and they had a McDonald's for which I apologized, but um, their seating area was like five times the size that you would see in the U.S. And there were only a couple registers because it was understood that people weren't going to take the food and leave and eat it. They were going to eat it there. And and so and and your point about the client that comes in that's got all this labor-saving devices, but he's got no time to expend his labor in because he's busy doing all these other things. How much of our life is, uh, today in the United States? And again, have to be careful. Don't want to make sweeping generalizations about what everybody's life is like. But you know that that idea that we're we're expending all this on convenience, but what do we do with the time that we're supposed to then achieve as a result of the convenience? So I, I think there's a number of things that we could look at there, not just the food system, and they all should be looked at. But you know, what what did the first cell phones cost? And today they give them away, right? Um, when I was a kid um, i I was at the tail end of when they tried to teach you how to use a slide rule yes i 'm that old um, and And then the rich kids started to get these hundred plus dollar calculators that would do math you know uh, multiplication addition, division, and subtraction and If they were really rich, their parents had bought them one that would do square roots right. <laughs> And yet today, they'll give those—they'll give away more powerful calculators than that. So all of these things have happened at clear across society, um, and it's right to look at impacts clear across society. Um, but but we do seem to you know get back to the romance of things we do seem to want to focus more on some um aspects than than others um i i think that the it's it is critical that people truly understand where food comes from and all of the costs of that production um and I'm more than happy to help people get in touch with, you know, production agriculture. I I, I think that that's um, really important. I had one of my um, achievements was to introduce Nina Teicholz, who wrote The Big Fat Surprise, to a woman named Ann Burkhalter. Now, both of those women come from urban backgrounds, Right. They both went to college um, and yet they end up in very different places Anne happened to um, go to, I think, Dartmouth um, to be a collegiate swimmer. And there she met uh, and later married a farm boy from Nebraska and ended up going back to Nebraska to raise their family. Well, she now runs a feed yard. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. And now you have Nina Teicholz who gets through her story very into the whole big fat surprise, you know, why butter, meat, and cheese belong in a healthy diet. So she gets really into the story of how we came to believe that saturated fat is harmful, but she has no ag background. Anne, meet Nina. Nina, meet Anne. Talk to each other. You're both raising families. You have this background in common. Go for it. Um, And oh, by the way, Anne wasn't aware of of Nina's book. Um, So yeah, read this. (laughs) Because you're raising the product that's been demonized for the last 40 years. And she's doing it with integrity. She's doing it with outside monitoring. She's constant improvement. All these things that are going on in the beef industry that people just aren't aware of. Um, and so we, 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 need to, I think, do a better job of, of communicating. And unfortunately, there's just a whole lot of talking at people these days. You may have noticed that.
3: Well, the, um, you know, I mean, you keep talking about this, you know, shift. And for those of you guys listening, I mean, really that shift, I mean, if you go back and, uh, you know, kind of pick its roots, it's kind of that Ansel Keys, the uh, seven country study. You know, and the, uh, the idea that there was a correlation between, you know, heart disease and saturated fat. And ironically, about a week later, it got disproved, but um, it didn't seem that everybody wanted to listen. And, uh, you know, and now we've gone down this, you know, I mean, over 40 years. I mean, you're talking almost 50, 50 plus years of this idea that, you know, there's a problem. And I mean, even to this day, I still hear people be like, oh, I, you know, this and, you know, fat. And, and I'm like, dude, there's no correlation between dietary cholesterol and uh, the cholesterol on your body, and fat, and it seems to be that even though uh, we know that, that, you know, these two are not related, people will not give it up, and I, I have no idea why it's so hard. I mean, was it ingrained? I mean, you know, and, you know, better idea, did we build an entire industry around it, or was it, you know, some form of, clandestine deal to try to, I don't know. I mean, it, it just, it it seems to me that like I've been talking to people about this so, so long that I'm at the point now where I just don't even talk to them about it anymore. I'm like, dude, if, if if I, I'm not going to convince you and all I'm doing is wasting my time, but you know, there's the opportunity to go and learn something.
2: Well, we do know, I mean, there's, there's now, Papers that came out, what, last September that estimated that over half of the adult population of America is either diabetic or pre-diabetic. We also have some reason to expect from some other work that it may be as high as 75% or more of adults are somewhere along that spectrum of... Prediabetes, metabolic syndrome, hyperinsulinemia, and then overt diabetes, somewhere along that, up more than 75%. So, as in my case, when I started to notice you know, abdominal obesity, um, elevated blood pressure, um, depressed HDL cholesterol, elevated triglycerides, elevated fasting blood glucose, by the technical definition, if you've got three out of those five, you've got metabolic syndrome. So let's forget about what everyone should be eating and let's just focus on 75% of the population that could be somewhere in that camp. And what could be said is that the first thing someone in that situation ought to be doing is eating a diet restricted in carbohydrate and therefore high in fat. And the fats that they ought to be eating ought to be those coming from animal products or olive oil, coconut oil, avocado oil, not seed oils. That's it. And if we, you know, what are the the metrics that you use with your clients to indicate that they're making progress? Well, up until recently, we haven't had really good metrics to look at or to measure against in the population because we've been so confused. But we're getting much better metrics now um, that people can actually see real improvement in their health and lowering of their risk of any number of chronic diseases. And the list is pretty scary. I mean, we, we can look at heart disease, kidney disease, um, you know, stroke, cancer, alzheimer's disease all of these in diabetes all of these are now understood to share some common linkage Um, but we also live in a society where the third leading cause of premature death is treatment or examination iatrogenic is the name for the the caused by treatment or examination, the third leading cause of premature death, and the rate of injury is estimated to be 10 to 20-fold greater. So it could be argued that if you really wanted to improve the health of Americans, you should restrict access to the medical care system. Um, But what Really can be said is the best thing you can do for your health is stay out of the hospital. What we do really well in this country is treat the acute you know injury what we 're not so good at is treating the chronic illness so it it it, it becomes hard to have conversations about specific small pieces when there 's a much bigger um, a uh, uh, picture that the people at least need to be aware of so that when somebody starts saying, you know, uh, I eat a vegetarian diet because I don't want to kill animals um, and that's the diet that we used to eat, well, that's factually incorrect on both cases. But how are you going to have that conversation? Um, better, I think, to reach people at that point of um, crisis like I was when in 2007 I realized that something needed to change. And fortunately, my wife had been on this journey for five years before that. But she's a very smart woman, and she knew that talking to me about it before I was ready to listen to her talk to me about it probably wouldn't be helpful. So her approach was, this is what I'm going to eat. What would you like to eat? you know, one of accommodation while stating what it was that she was going to do. And, and, and then, you know, finally, uh, I became ready. And, and fortunately I had an in-house expert that I could lean on for, uh, guidance, at least to get me introduced to, uh, books and websites and such. And it's been an interesting journey ever since.
3: We, uh, you know, from our perspective, I mean, I see this thing in a kind of a performance model and, um, you know, in terms of, you know, being able to not only, you know, recover, being able to do your job bigger, stronger, faster. And, uh, you know, there's no question that eating, I guess you could say a diet of, you know, kind of an animal-based protein, real food diet is, you know, going to produce much greater, not only strength, recovery, performance gains than eating, uh, you know, uh, more conventional or you say more Westernized or just more you know mainstream type diet. And, you know, and then, what happens is, is we get things like, for example, there was some article that forwarded me the other day where a guy, uh, you know, coming back from his ACL reconstruction, uh, all of a sudden, you know, is recovering like Wolverine, and you know that was the comment they made. And the idea is that uh, he has, you know, tired of eating toxins and poison, so he's gone vegan and now he's he's healing. And you know, the problem is, is one I know that's complete bullshit, but if you're eating a diet of, you know, chicken McNuggets, fast food, and more, you know, you know, Cheetos and pizza, and then all of a sudden you move to eating more like a vegan diet where he's eating, obviously, you know, you know, and, uh, not those foods, but maybe something more healthy in terms of what a vegan would view is healthy. Um, you know, obviously you're going to have, you know, a, a, a gain over it. So it, what's hard for us and what we constantly fight is things like this. And it's like, oh, you know, you, you know, vegan. And I'm like, it, it doesn't make sense. And uh, the problem that I have is that there's so much supporting information. I mean, you know, and I, if you go read the T. Colin Campbell deal with, um, you know, uh, the China study and then, you know, versus uh, uh, Dr. Cordain and, you know, you go through and you see how they cherry pick all the data and it's been beat to death. So we don't need to get into it. But what's amazing is people are so willing to cling to these things. It's, uh, I, you know, and the only the only explanation I have is that food has become almost the new religion where, you know, they, they talk about, you know, you go to a cocktail party, you don't know, talk about politics or religion. Well, I mean, you go to a, a, you know, you meet people and the one thing you almost want to avoid is talking about food and, um, you know, and, and really, you know, what is healthy has become such a confusing, confusing space that, uh, you know, it's almost so difficult to tackle it. Because uh, everybody's vision and view of healthy is different. You know, what is healthy? And the way I look at healthy is, you know, like you said, if you go get your blood work done and you have a metabolic derangement, whatever you were doing is not working. But Mm -hmm. oddly enough, people are going to ride this stuff to the bottom of the ocean. And, and, you know, I mean, we have obesity problems, but yet, uh, you know, people are thinking to themselves, well, you know, I'm fat. Uh, The fat on my waist must equal the fat I'm eating, so I'm going to eat a low-fat diet and that's going to work for me. And it just – does it make sense that way? And, uh, um, it just, I, I don't understand. I mean, maybe it's, um, you know, lack of education, maybe it's the best of interest, but it just seems that this paradigm shift is not happening. Even though it is happening, people aren't hearing the message.
2: I, I guess hmm. maybe, uh, I, choose to be an optimist um but to there were a couple points and i'd like to kind of cycle back one is you know the teacher's comment that she wouldn't eat that way um yet i wonder how what she's teaching is constrained by the policy that tells us what is healthy right the 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 the, the food policy in the united states is actually a lot of policy in the united states is incredibly tied to the dietary guidelines and and so that's one reason why that needs to be dealt with Um, number two uh your point about um the we can now discuss food that's you know um so what what's what's the joke about if you're a if 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 you're a vegan that does crossfit which which do you tell people first Um, Because that seems to now be this this method of of virtue signaling. That's a concept of, you know, rather than us actually do the hard work of developing virtue, you know, in the Latin word strength, um, we'll we'll just, um, we'll support causes that show that we're good or we'll buy the right things that shows that we're good, you know, rather than actually go do anything about it. Um, sure. Adele has a comment that we, Americans like love the idea of saving the world by shopping,
0: <laughs> and
2: <laughs> and so so buying the right food is is you know part of this picture as well. Um, I I I've had the very rewarding experience of having a number of people come up to me. You know, I've been out out talking in this country and others about this for over uh, five years now. And I have people that come up and they say, you know, whatever it is they say about their own personal journey. Now, when I'm in my right mind, what I say is I'm just a pipe for this information. I didn't do the research. I didn't, you know, write the book. I'm just repeating to you information that other people have given me. Um and they then went and applied the information and had the completely predictable results. <laughs> it's it's not even hard, you know, it's just like, yeah, you'll do it. Um and so they come back and they say something very kind and I then say, you know, I'm I'm so happy for you. Well, I, I think that this revolution at at one point I, I wanted to call, you know, this um, this grassroots health, but that talk that title was already taken by people who were doing work with vitamin D, so I couldn't use that. So grass based health is what I started writing about. And again, back to the very beginning of when we spoke, I I was very you know uh, supportive, and I still am. Uh, with qualification for for grass-fed meats and dairy, I you know it's it's not that I'm saying don't, um, but I I've kept the name because I need to maintain that that honesty to say yeah I, I I was once sort of over the tips of my skis a little bit and had to come back, um, but also because. Ruminant agriculture is grass-based. In fact, all of agric- all of animal agriculture in the United States is grass-based. Um, if I can find the, the the figures, it's something like I've got some figures here that show that if you look at all the feed that goes into feeding all of the animals in the United States—not pets, but food animals—you're looking at almost two-thirds of that feed is forage and that includes poultry that get no forage and that includes swine that get only a, you know they get 15 20% so the, the 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 livestock industry in the united states is a forage based industry and again not a lot of people know that and i'm a forage geek so i guess i shouldn't expect people to know that but again the conversation has been so tainted by these other narratives and conflated. Uh, Francis Moore LePay, Diet for a Small Planet, is a book that came out in the early 70s. And of course, that was the spirit of the time. right? And, and that, that book really influenced the staff members of George McGovern's committee that ended up writing the dietary goals in the first place and and there are fundamental problems with her nutritional information but there's also fundamental problems with her whole message which was that the earth can't support this number of people if we eat meat that's not true and and so how do we how do we get those messages
3: out it was something the only way we're going to support it is by eating animal products i mean obviously in terms of nutritional density they're much higher but, I mean, just to really go back, I mean, it seems as if the, the grass-fed versus grain-fed, it seems to be kind of, a, I mean, it doesn't seem, but it's really kind of overblown in a lot of ways where, you know, if an animal is raised, you know, uh, it takes, uh, you know, 18, you know, 12 to 14, 18 months to raise a, you know, an animal to full maturity, um, you know, and send it off. I mean, if at the last, you know, 30 days of its life, it's actually fattened up on grain, I mean, it doesn't, it seems to be pretty negligible. And when it seems as if most of the animals that would be classified as a grain-fed animal are raised on you know some form of forage. Isn't that that's an accurate statement?
2: Yeah, I, I the the majority if if I just I found the slide now, if I just look at all of the beef cattle in the United States, just the beef cows, not the dairy cows. Uh, you know, more a little bit more than 80% of the feed that's used to feed all of the beef cattle in the United States is forage. That comes in when you take an animal and you put it into a feed yard for, as you say, those last four months or so. And at that point, they're still going to get 25 to 30% of their ration is going to be forage. And then the thing you got to be careful about is that other 75 to, you know, 70 to 75% of their ration is called concentrate. And that's a bit antique, but it's something that we're still de- dealing with in animal nutrition. A concentrate is is a feedstuff that has a relatively high level of energy in it. Well, that can be something like vegetable processing waste right? so you go out in the field and you harvest let's say potatoes okay and then you take those potatoes and you run them through a plant that makes french fries or potato chips or god knows what that's going to produce potato peelings called potatoes you know etc well that's a waste product from the human food perspective but that all goes into feed yards in the area to feed animals at which can then turn it into human utilizable food and and the same thing happens even with grains that could be fed to humans, but because they 're off grade or in some sense not you know marketable directly for human consumption, they can then go off and be fed to ruminant livestock and one of the things that happens as a result is the human food is cheaper because they don't have to pay to dispose of that waste stream right so again it's a it's an interlocking system um and and again it, it when people talk about grain versus grass they're kind of oversimplifying just a little bit understandably so but the reality is a little different uh from what the popular conversation is
1: so uh peter before and john both you guys i guess let's
2: because
1: i could i'm i was one of these guys before i came out here right before i was enlightened by getting to meet you and everybody john that that you're involved with but like People are going to listen to this, and they're going to shit their pants, and they're going to be like, who do I do that? I'm so, I have so many unanswered questions. So in terms of someone who's going to be eating beef or going to the market to grab beef, I mean, what is the decision matrix you have to – like, what do you have to take into consideration? What are the cascading – like, okay, it, you know, yeah, absolutely, eat your grass-fed beef, but understand here's the basis why you should be eating grass-fed versus maybe just the grain-fed variety like what what information we arm people with to to extinguish their concerns that are surely to arise? because yeah, we've yeah. been big proponents of grass fed.
3: the one thing that i will say is kind of you know uh, a big turnoff for me is the idea that uh animals you know like um or else the, the big one and, and you could answer this 100 percent better than i can uh, the idea is that uh, animals that are not raised on a more, um, you know, forage diet tend to have more health problems. So then, there's also a deal with antibiotics. So I remember there was this huge push in terms of, uh, you know, having to provide antibi- uh, antibiotics to these different animals. So then, therefore, the meat was, you know, higher antibiotic content. I mean, that was another one we we were hearing a lot about. That I don't really yeah. So to carry, so but. let's yeah let's just squash
2: that one real quickly. There's there is testing. For antibiotic residues in milk and in meat um, and it is a non-issue right so um, that you know buying local in some senses gets outside of the monitoring process so if you're really wanting to avoid antibiotic residue in meat and I'm not saying it's an issue in local all right I'm not saying that but what I'm saying is, when it goes through local processing, it then is outside of the commercial. And the commercial processing stream involves routine testing for antibiotic residue. Um,
3: all right. You so, know, the et- is out. so that's bullshit because, uh, you know, there was like a, what was it, Cowspiracy and all this bullshit yeah. where they're showing, you know, them. Basically, forklifting dead animals and throwing them into the into, into the meat grinders. And right,
2: right. Male bovine fecal matter. Yeah, um, it. it
1: and, uh, yeah,
3: <laughs> so I'm the other kind of bullshit. Um, the other one is that there's, I mean, and like, dude, I, you know, people love. I mean, it's really what our our country has turned into this idea of fear mongering, where people rather get their nutritional or nutrition and political perspective based off of a forward chain letter. Yeah. it seems <laughs> like they're actually doing anything by talking to experts. And, and really, I mean, you know, I, uh, we we're talking about it offline. I mean, part of the deal with, with this company, is power it's kind of a bullshit like, um, and the problem becomes, uh, we're not necessarily wed to anything other than performance and empowering your performance. So like, you know, in terms of weight, training if uh bouncing on a boot ball with a candle above your head produced the most performance gains for field sports and what we're looking to do we would have that in the program it's kind of similar to food um you know i know that eating a you know real food diet produces greater you know not only strength uh, muscle and performance gains than eating something that you know has uh you know overly processed but you know when we really get stuck into this idea is um you know, people ask me, they were like, you know, uh, the grass-fed versus grain-fed debate. I'm like, at the end of the day, as long as you're eating meat, I say, yeah, protein, you're ahead of the game. Now, if, you know, there is some, uh, you know, and, and I, I I admit, I fall prey to this, too. If there's, uh, you know, personally, I kind of like the taste of game and grass-fed mm-hmm. uh, meat a little bit better than, the, you know, commercially kind of stuff. And I, I, I noticed the taste and the consistency. It also cooks a lot faster, so you have to kind of undercook it a little bit, which Mm -hmm. I did, too. So, uh, but, I mean, realistically, it doesn't sound like a lot of the boogeymen that, you know, that the, that I guess the primal paleo community's been making it out to be is really there. Uh, uh, Kind of from the beginning of our
2: talk, I, I think so many issues have been raised around a similar narrative. And basically the the idea is that, you know, meat is bad. Oh, well, this kind of meat is less bad, right? And, and so you can feel better because you're gonna eat meat, humans are gonna do that. But, you know, you wanna eat the right kind of meat, you know, and, and, and so I, I understand all of that. Uh, I, I would, you know, there's a couple things, you know, sort of thought experiments. If you were engaged in the production of beef and you weren't convinced of its safety, would you feed it to your your family uh, second thought experiment um, we know that stress is harmful for human beings right in any number of ways uh, would we would it be a stretch to imagine that that same kind of stressful condition would hurt animal performance.
1: Yeah. Uh, um, yeah.
2: And, and and so yeah. if your if your livelihood is involved in the production or, or the, the, the the efficient production of animal products that you then sell and understand the very tight margins that a lot of these businesses are on. You would be very interested in reducing stress because that would improve performance. And also, you would be interested in lowering your input costs as much as reasonable. Um, And so and, and, and those two things are often tied. So if you have mismanagement of some kind, you're more likely to have animals that get sick, therefore have to be treated. And so everything that you do is geared towards lowering stress, improving herd health, reducing, therefore, the need for inputs Um, So, in, in some ways, a lot of the arguments are just, they're illogical once you can step back and look at what it is these people are trying to do. Now, I have to be real careful with this one, but some people have made this case that any nursing mother knows the impact of stress on lactation. Well... Might it be a similar situation in a dairy? Yeah, it is. You know, the same situation. And in fact, uh, Peter Defty that I mentioned earlier, who's done um, Vespa, I think is his uh, company working with ultra endurance athletes, uh, made the case about just what athletes the modern dairy cow is and what she's able to do in terms of the the production of milk so uh, again there are m- many ways to look at this and um i'm really grateful to have the the situation that i'm in to try to foster the conversation you mentioned or it was mentioned uh, i think luke mentioned you know you're going to have people that just kind of twitch real hard and i understand that we can't get people all the way from one position to another because they listen to some what the hell is that guy called? An agronomist? What 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 who what does he know? And and absolutely, absolutely. There are talks that I've given that are online. You can find stuff that I'm writing where I'm just trying to point to other people and say, go check this out. Um, well,
3: Doc, you're uh, not to distract. I mean, yeah, don't. I mean, the you know you don't have to no self-deprecating, but uh, you are the expert that we contacted on this for a very for that good reason. It's similar to when you know I hear somebody talking about you know uh, you know trying to play in the NFL or NFL players do this, and I'm like that's fucking bullshit. Um, that isn't at all what happens. And more importantly, like I'm gonna offer some stuff or some. Information based off of my experience is what I've done and what I've seen work, you know, and we've been uh, fortunate to Teach hundreds of seminars all over the globe teaching you know this method that you know put together and uh, you know from the Arctic Circle down all the way to New Zealand and back and so uh, You know these you know ideas is that you know to really have good information you have to get outside of your circle and start you know or really enlarge your circle and have conversations with people that are you know that are doing something completely different than what you were doing so that the information that you bring back is probably the the freshest least painted and more importantly the most objective information you can provide so somebody that's actually you know working in this field that is saying you know like and that that was what i enjoyed about your talk where you were like you know if it's a uh, fatty acid profile then don't eat any almonds or don't eat any walnuts because you know mm-hmm. a, a handful of walnuts going to have way more omega-6 six uh, than any type of, you know, grain-fed meat. So, um, you know, and that's something that we hear so much. I mean, that was the uh, email that I got or that question that I got was, you know, I only have, you know, $100 a month to spend on food is, you know, you know how can I eat this organic grass-fed deal? And I was like, one, you physically or, you know, budget-wise, you can't. And, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing is that you're actually consuming, you know, animal-based protein. So this is, you know, the best way to do it. And the way that I offered him was, uh, chicken thighs and organ meats. Because, mm-hmm. you know, surprisingly in the country, um, organ meats are, you know, some of the, you know, cheapest meats out there because people don't want to eat them. Whereas in other countries they are some of the most expensive. So, um, it's just, it's refreshing to hear. And, you know, so much of what we run into is this, people holding the dogma on the party line because it most benefits them. And you run into somebody that's objective and that's why, you know, the information is so good. Uh,
2: I I encourage people to shop with confidence, but look at what you're buying. Right. So, um, there was that thing about shop the outside of the market, you know, um, but you can find, you know, potatoes on the outside of the market, and you know, if you're if you're somewhere in that metabolic syndrome continuum, you probably need to be careful with uh, the white potatoes. But I I appreciate what you say, and and I encourage people to look deeper into the information um, to find um, and, and and even even Gary Taubes in his in his book uh, Why We Get Fat and I've cited this a couple times, he very correctly sidesteps some of these questions that people come back. uh, um, What what about-ism or something? What about this-ism? The argument that always comes back is, yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but what about that? No, 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 no. Let's stay here and have this conversation because if what, He's now talking about in the book that apparently is going to come out the end of December. There was just a video released of one of his early talks. He just gave it a couple months ago. Um, It's likely that cancer is more related to chronically elevated insulin than it is about toxins in the diet. So now let's talk about why you would buy organic right? And I've got pictures of the organic toaster pastry. <laughs> you know, what? what is it, you th- or, or the, the, the um, mac and cheese in a box from grass-fed cows? Really? What, what's that going to do for you? What is it you think you're buying with that label claim? Uh, I'm not saying for a moment it doesn't meet the label claim. <laughs> I'm saying, what is it you think you're achieving by paying more for that product? To it I did have a question uh, if it's if it's relevant if you ever change your appeals because uh, like you you spoke at the ancestral symposium and most of the audience has bought into kind of your research but is you change anything when you're working with or introducing this info to kind of a new audience if you will well I, I guess on the the AG audiences I end up talking more about the dietary message Um, Which, you know, some people might find, um, you know, sort of like playing t-ball, right? (laughs) Yeah, you're going to go talk to the beef industry about eating beef. That must be tough. Um, But a lot of the people haven't heard the information that, you know, John would be talking to people about or that, you know, maybe the people there, certainly the people in the paleo or primal community are more familiar with. And so you look at these audiences and you see a lot of people that, you know, at least in my mind, qualify for, you know, metabolic syndrome diagnosis. And, you know, they're small businessmen. You know, they've got to worry about health care. Um, so there are those implications beyond just the products, you know, and, um, I also have this dream that one of these days I'm going to run into the right cattleman that's politically connected, who's going to start rattling some cages. So that's part of it as well. Um, but, you know, mostly, um, it, it has, the talk really doesn't change that much. What's happened now is I have multiple talks, so, you know, meat is medicine is one, Uh, red meat is green is another, which, you know, was my attempt to start talking about environmental issues, and now what I'm developing is this concept of a ruminant revolution that the only way that we're going to feed 9 billion people by 2050 is by improving ruminant agriculture. And by doing that, we'll improve the environment. And by doing that, we'll improve the health of people, not just in this country, but I mean, diabetes is a worldwide epidemic. And if we're right, we're going to have to do a lot more than just 60% more animal products, because all those estimates are based on the same, you know, what's a healthy diet, paradigm so um and then that you know that talk allows you to talk about things like what really happens with grassland agriculture in terms of carbon sequestration wherever we are with that whole question or um you know environmental impact from ruminant agriculture versus conventional you know cropping uh cash crop row crop agriculture and um, there, there are a number of things that we can um, address under that. Not the least of which is, um, back in the 60s and 70s, um, Professor Borlaug uh, helped billion, you know, like a billion people avoid starvation. That, that's a worthy goal. But now the ruminant revolution will be about prosperity, not just survival. So. But that's how it changes a little bit.
1: Peter when you when you talk about the ruminant revolution is there anything like any radical changes in technology or agriculture that that people are looking into like you know maybe um maybe lunar lunar agriculture or something <laughs> like that we're going to shift some cows oh. to the moon?
2: <laughs> oh, you know, think about a ruminant in zero gravity and that's not a real appealing thought. Um <laughs> Or in an yeah.
3: enclosed room with, with methane gas parts. I mean, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that there, is a, that there is room for technology, and I've, I've talked about that a bit. Um, we, we, the company that I work for is a grass breeding and seed production company, and then we wholesale market throughout the world export throughout the world wholesale market throughout US. Uh, we also export to other, comp- uh, other countries like Canada and Mexico. Um, but we're part of a worldwide company. We have developed varieties of grasses just through standard selection and screening process that are more digestible than the vast majority of the same species of that grass that are used today so in other words if you know people could be growing grass that's more digestible has more energy Um, we can do a better job of uh, feeding high producing ruminants with these grasses so they need less grain which is a good thing Um, there's some work about how you can feed animals at weaning that then sets them up for the remainder of their life to have more desirable carcass traits. And so you briefly stated I could take an animal at weaning for three months and feed them uh, versus taking that animal through to the final phase and put them in a feedlot for weaning uh, for, for three months. And, and if I'm feeding them at 4% alive weight at both times, I end up feeding them less early because they weigh less, but I end up with a better product at the end, even though they've been on grass for the rest of their lives. Very interesting stuff there's interesting stuff with fetal implanting, uh, not implanting imprinting there's implanting as well, but that's different um so that uh, the nutrition of the cow affects how well that calf is going to perform, and you could. Apply this to humans as well, and it gets really scary. Um, some of the stuff Talb's was talking about, like children, infants born to diabetic mothers, are at a 45 times greater risk of being diabetic by age 25 than children born to non-diabetic mothers. And if they're just insulin resistant or high glucose, you know, like gestational diabetes, the children are 20 times greater risk. So that's a bit of the tsunami that's coming at us. Back to the technology, there's a whole bunch of of portable fencing and, poor, you know, uh, temporary water supply systems that farmers can now use, so they can get greater control of animals on the the, the pastures, uh, which helps with a number of areas. Um, There's some things with fertilizer. There's some things with natural pest control or resistance. So there's a whole number of things, um, including just remote sensing. people have actually developed tools so that farmers can very quickly estimate how much dry feed they have on their various pastures so that they can then go back and say okay how am i going how many days can i graze these animals here before i have to move them before i have to move them before i have to move them and so they can look down and say you know in a month's time I'm going to be short or long on feed, so I need to make management decisions now so that I don't get stuck in a train wreck then. Um, So there's a whole bunch of that sort of technology and knowledge and skill, and that's just in this country. You start going overseas where a lot of this is going to have to take place, obviously. And there's just that, and everything we've learned for the last forty, fifty, sixty years that could be applied to help them. Um, but of course, a lot of that also involves politics and ownership and those, you know, sort of things as well. But um, the 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 potential is undeniably there.
1: Wow, I mean, so with with a lot of this, I mean, would you call it? genetic modification of the grass seed and things like that? I mean, are we, are we tiptoeing on kind of that the Monsanto conspiracy now? Spir- not at all.
2: No, not at, at all. all. No, we don't have, you know, we don't have to go there in this realm. Um, the, everything that we're doing, again, in the company that I work for is non-GMO uh, in that sense, right? Um it it is strictly, Uh, We go out, you know, these grasses that we use in North America, they, most of them originated somewhere else. Um, Mm -hmm. So they came here post, you know, as part of the Columbian Exchange. Um, And so we have people that go to the areas, the parts of the world, Mediterranean region, North Africa, Southern Europe, you know, Middle Europe, and we make collections of these species that are growing out there where they've grown for millennia. And then we bring those, those animals, we bring those plants in to the greenhouse and we separate them out. And then we plant them in space plantings, single grass plants, so that we can see how they perform. Do they survive, first of all? Do they yield seed here in Oregon? Second of all, if we find something that looks promising, then we send it out to, say, Missouri or Alabama or Georgia or Virginia, somewhere out in the marketplace and see how they perform, do they survive there, do they yield forage, et cetera, et cetera. If they work there, then we bring them back and we do some more selections to make sure that we're looking at something that will still be a viable seed crop. And then once we get enough seed put together, then we send it back out and we say, okay, here's some- enough to plant bigger plots, um, either for cutting trials or even bigger plots so that you can put animals on them. And we go through that process and this can take a decade or more. Um, but ultimately we end up with plants that are well adapted, that are productive, that are, because we select them for things like greater digestibility, which is a genetic trait, then we end up with something that the farmer can grow and end up producing more digestible fiber on a unit of land than he could before.
3: So there's uh, I I guess it's what you're saying is that there's more nutritious grass or just there's there's better grasses that are more adapted well, or are the animals more adapted? as need grass. grass, bad grass. Right. Good grass, bad grass.
2: Yeah, exactly right. No, that's exactly right. Spot on. I'll have to give you credit for that one. Um, uh, somewhere, somewhere I came across the idea of if you hear something you like, the first three times you repeat it, you give the guy credit. After that, it's yours.
1: Um, yeah, That's funny. I, uh, I mean, it's, it's – um, you
3: know, I, you know, I mean, I, it, it seems like such a, a, a paradigm in that there was this, you know, and I want to say right around 2008, 2009, when really paleo and the primal deal kind of blew up and it was just kind of harking back to a simpler time and this, and this is how, you know, things and the Joel salad into the world. And, you know, this is how, uh, you know, animals were raised for millennium and, you know, this is how it should be and that, you know, a lot of the health problems we're having today come from this. And, uh, you know, my argument was always like, well, um, you know, my great grandparents uh, were farmers and they ate a diet probably pretty similar to what you're talking about. But they also got up at 4 a.m. and they worked nonstop having to, you know, with, you know, without the use of modern machinery to not only, uh, you know, raise the animals, tend them, do, I mean, do everything and, you know, drank coffee black and this whole deal and live to be in their 80s, uh, mm-hmm. much healthier you know, and, uh, you know, people are like, oh, it was the lifestyle. I'm like, oh, it was the fact that these people got up and worked their ass off seven days a week in the sun and, out like, yeah, out of necessity and survived. And, like, you know, it's like I, I almost think that as as human beings that, you know, the more comfort and least stress that we remove from our lives almost, you know, probably hurts us more than anything. I mean, you know, sitting in a confines of an office behind a computer all day is probably more detrimental to you know your health then are you consuming organic foods so i mean but the yeah. problem is is it's easier to make those fights being like well you know like you said it's the trade-off like um, well i'm sitting in an office and i'm not really doing much all day in terms of uh you know exercise but uh, i'm eating organic so i'm doing something so it's yeah. just kind of like uh offering people uh you know small victories i guess you could say in a lot of ways is that you know hey i'm uh Uh, you know, I'm doing this because I can't do this. And so it's it's become more acceptable. And like, I I love when people ask me those questions. I'm like, well, dude, I, uh, you know, and I tell them the story about my great grandparents. And I'm like, dude, but they literally worked. I mean, my grandmother or great grandmother got up and not only the food that they prepared, but they or that they grew went in and she spent the entire day in the kitchen because you had to make everything from scratch. And the minute breakfast got done, they made lunch and they made dinner. And, you know, that's how it was spent. And it's like, you know, how many hours a day are people spending in the kitchen really making their food? No, they're not. So, uh, like you said, it's become a matter of convenience. And I think people look and they point at these things, not seeing the bigger picture. Well, there's there's a, a quote here, the
2: risks that kill people and the risks that concern people are completely different.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. And, yeah. and um, I, sure, if we... <sighs> In some cases, this is sort of this imposed guilt. Uh, We've been told what we need to do to be healthy, that is lean and healthy. And if we're not lean and healthy, we must not be doing it right. Now, to some extent, maybe we aren't doing it, but maybe we are. Uh, and, And so then you have that sort of compounded guilt thing. And so if there's something that will help me feel a little better, uh then maybe that's you know may, maybe that's worth paying more for i don't know what's the impact of that on your physical health um i i think it's absolutely true that we you know i i i talk to the the 80 year old ranchers who remember their 90 year old grandparents so that puts it back a while um, and You know, what, you know, they're, they're talking about them with, you know, frying the eggs swimming in bacon grease for breakfast. And, you know, it, damn if it didn't kill them when they were 95. You know, um, we, we clear something, there's, there's a genetic component, undeniably. There's also an environmental component, undeniably. What is that environmental component? And unfortunately, people are so geared. Um, to look for patterns, and even see patterns that don't exist, and then once they've seen patterns, continue to see them, even though they've been refuted. Um, the, the The question of taste is one that comes up a lot, and the the, the science of taste and discernment is really fascinating to look at. Um, if you, and, and I think I got this from the book Blink, but if you the people that do rigorous taste testings know that you can skew the results unintentionally or intentionally with a lot of factors beyond the taste itself. So the best example is in this country, if you, um, you know, like have a cylindrical container for ice cream, you know, and, and you fill it up from the mix and then the very next container that you fill up from the very same mix is, you know, one of those block containers. And you put them both in the same freezer and then you bring them out for the taste test. If you don't let the tasters see the, the, the package, so you truly blind, you just give them a dish of each. Um, they won't be able to tell a difference because there isn't one. If, on the other hand, you let them see the package, in the United States, they will reliably pick the ice cream from the cylindrical container as tasting better. Because we've been conditioned to associate that cylindrical container with premium ice cream. (laughs) And and if you and if you switch them up so that you let them believe that the ice cream that they're tasting came from the cylindrical container when in fact it came from the other one, they'll say it
3: tastes well, better I, than the well like okay how, uh, like like in in terms of meat and i I cook oh, i mean we pretty much barbecue or or cook steaks I mean almost uh for majority almost every single i mean I've eaten red meat or at least some form of meat almost every meal when I got off we'll have to eat chicken I feel like I want to like eat dirt but uh uh, (laughs) I will definitely say that the grass-fed meat cooks dramatically faster uh you know like for me Mm -hmm. you know like it just like uh and and uh my wife is uh like I like it pretty much as you know just like black and blue like heat it up and and put it on the Mm -hmm. plate whereas my wife likes it a little bit more so I refuse to cook any steak past like medium rare (laughs) <laughs> and so what she'll do is she'll take it in, like, the other day with the elk. Like, she's like, oh, it's too bloody. I'm like, do it yourself. So she'll throw it in the oven for a few – and she was in there for, like, three minutes and it overcooked like that. She's like, I've never seen anything overcooked like that. And I'm like, it's got to be fat content. I mean, you know, obviously mm-hmm. that's a leaner, you know, uh, uh, you know, grazing wild animals. Obviously going to be uh, a little bit leaner than, you know, especially in drought here in California than something else. But, um, you know, I mean, that's something where, you know, if you gave me two steaks, I could tell you which was grass fed. Pretty much by the taste and also how fast it cooks
2: oh absolutely it's it,
3: it, yeah
2: I, the point was not to say that there isn't in fact a taste difference but it is to say that a lot of the conversation might be colored by people being very committed to one side or the other right and maybe sure. it would be more appropriate with organic vegetables or fruits or something like that no without a doubt there are qualitative differences to the, you know meat from two different production systems, um, I just remembered one of the comments and i haven 't had a chance to look at it much, but if I remember right, and this is all again coming from dr michael eads you um, if you look at hunter gatherers, they tended to eat the the hunters tended to eat the organ meat. They tended to go after the brain and they tended to go after marrow and things like that. The muscle meat was either left or it was what they used to dry for later use, things like that, or they'd haul a haunch back to wherever. He made a comment at some point, point; I forget exactly when, um, perhaps what we've done in our animal husbandry the selection and breeding and feeding practices of modern animal agriculture, is produce more fattier meat from these animals than was previously available. And so now we have cattle, for example, that can have a higher fat content in muscle meat, than the wild oryx would have, or that earlier, you know, like longhorn type animals would have. And, and that's, again, something for us to kind of look into and think about just a little bit. Whereas, you know, there's been all this pressure over the years uh, to lower the fat content of meat, so much so that the pork industry actually went overboard. And produced really long, really lean pigs that produced very lean pork that ended up being basically tasteless. And so then, yeah. you know, they have to do various things in processing, or people lose interest and then they discover things like some of the older breeds of pork that are produced, as you say, from local uh, producers. They're actually now trying to produce pork with a little bit more fat content but one of the things we'll that happened
3: it. go ahead oh uh i you know last year I, I i took uh two pretty big pigs uh hunting i mean they were well over 350 pounds a piece <laughs> and uh, i put all that in the freezer and i remember luke came over and we had what we call the ellipse. and <laughs> uh i mean we made uh, i mean what was it, it was ribs i mean, so, I mean ribs. literally <laughs> i probably cooked. Easily 40 or 50 pounds of, I mean, I, I had the big green egg, the barbecue. I mean, we invited everybody over to have this apocalypse, porkalypse. And uh, the comment was made repeatedly, I didn't know pork could taste this good.
2: Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. And um, I, I was like, really? And they were like, Us- usually pork has just got such a, a bland taste, but this is actually like probably the best stuff. I mean, to the point where even my wife, who doesn't like pork, actually hated and was like, wow, this is really good. I would eat this. And I wasn't sure if it was the taste or the fact that it was, you know, uh, that I, you know, uh, harvested these things myself. And I, I told people that when I came up on these pigs, they were literally uh, had eaten themselves sick uh, in an alfalfa field up in Central California, uh you know, middle of California. They were literally, they were just decimating these alf- alfalfa fields. Um, and that's where I got them. And I'm like, dude, these things were, fat on alfalfa, which to me is, uh, you know, a pretty good diet for those, for, for pigs. So, um, man, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that one, but the, uh, that, I remember Lauren Cordain showing me a picture that was taken by, you know, right around, you know, uh, in the 1800s was taken a picture, uh, by, you know, some buffalo hunters that, had gone out and hunted with some local Indians and the picture showed the Indians sitting there. And I remember uh, they were standing in front of these big bowls, and their guts were so distended and their faces were covered in blood. And on the back of the picture, I guess the guy had made the point that each of the Indians had eaten something like eight pounds of organ meat that mm-hmm. as soon as they shot the animal, they went right in and uh, actually started taking out the different organs and they basically boarded themselves in the organs and then they took this picture and you could see these dudes whole face covered in blood with these massive distended guts and um, that was the part that they were really going after first so I mean yeah whereas you, know, you can't give away organ meats anymore in this country and that was kind of the the gist of that write-up where I'm like dude you got to go search out the organ meats I mean they're the best the best thing for buck I mean it's uh, uh you know a nutritional uh, kind of a hot spot and yeah, you, know, you can get that stuff pretty cheap. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: mm. well, Peter, I mean, you know, we we ran actually pretty long, a solid solid conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, you got you're you're a, a wealth of knowledge for for the folks listening to this. You know, one one piece is advice. I'm I'm of advice. Kind of a little
3: nervous uh, that you're going to get like,
1: <laughs>
3: in, it, it, is, yeah, yeah. bombarded with uh, with questions and fear mongering and people being like. Oh my God! Like this isn't as bad. so. I mean, I'm I'm just telling you to. Uh, but
1: the first the yeah. first step, I guess, if people want to learn a little bit more about what you got going on, where should they go? You know, is there a web a web property that you want to push out there? Is it your social media? What's up?
2: Yeah, right now I'm most active in social media. I have a blog that really has a lot of cobwebs on it and needs to be dusted off. So you can find me on Twitter under grass-based, as one word you can, and by name. You can find me on Facebook. I have a grass-based health page. Um, Again, you can find some videos of presentations both on YouTube and Vimeo. Uh, I would also encourage people to become really familiar with the information that's presented in, in books like um, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat, and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet. Um, I think, uh, what is it, Finney and Volick, um their Art and Science of a Low-Carbohydrate Diet is Really Useful. Um, and then there's a number of other books that I just find very, very, very interesting. If if anyone's interested in things like uh, the history of the Americas pre and post Columbus, Charles C. Mann, M a n n wrote two books, 1491 and 1493, and it's it's one of those opportunities to just kind of crack open a lot of these other narratives that we've been given, and and maybe um, like with the diet. Uh, I, I think that if we can get people to understand that what they've been told is a healthy diet isn't, then that might help us or at least start the process of opening people up to some of these other conversations uh, and understand...
1: understand. A lot of our listeners are probably pretty far down that process. I guess do you have any any resources where we could poke around the the facts and, and dispels a lot of the myths it's about uh agriculture and in the grain fed conspiracy or misconceptions
2: well yeah let's call it a misconception um to be charitable um i i think that not to be too self-serving the talks that i've given the the things that i post all have references so people can go to those references and look them up. Um, I've been challenged by some former uh, major professors that uh, I need to be writing a book. Um, So that's in process. I'll be speaking at the, well, no, I'll be speaking at the Low Carbohydrate Conference in San Diego the end of July. I'll be giving a poster at Ancestral Health in August.
1: Oh, great. Well, I'll tell you what, when that book comes out, Hit us back up, and uh, and we'll get you back on, and we can see, I guess, see see where that journey has taken you, and you know, talk about that that big uh, that big milestone in your career.
2: Wonderful, and and between now and then, feel free to reach out and contact me with specific issues or questions, or I'd be happy to talk some more. As you can tell, I I do go
3: on a bit it's great uh, all of us do but uh, hey thanks a lot for uh, jumping on and um, helping us out and um, yeah we'll we'll definitely be on social media and hit you up in any way and we really appreciate your time today thank you very much
2: you're more than welcome thanks for the opportunity and good luck with your work yes sir thank
3: you
0: now it's time for you to empower your performance No doubt we'll get some interesting comments in response to our conversation with Dr. Peter Ballerstedt. We encourage all of Power Athlete Nation to dive balls deep into their own research, starting with Peter's blog, grassbasedhealth.blogspot.com. Or you can find him on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, all under the name Grass-Based. Until next time, bye!